Good morning. Pastor Mark's on vacation, as I'm assuming you know that, and it looks like there's others on vacation as well, but we're not, right? Or at least we're here. Maybe some of you are on vacation. You're visiting here. Uh, We're glad to have you here. And and what a text to deal with this morning, huh? I said to the first service, hey, does anybody want to switch spots? It's obviously, there's a lot of sensitive issues in here, sensitive material. There's, and my hope is to exposit the text as it stands, to exposit the Word of God, but also to be sensitive to the realities of, of life and, and, and the real realities that are a part of life. And uh, so I have been praying for quite a while that God would use this sermon for His glory. We're in a series on the Gospel according to Matthew. We've been in that for a couple of weeks or months. We're in the section that's been called the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in Mark Rogopian fashion, I think it's kind of a good adjective, he entitled it Get Real. And I I love his catchy, creative title, because I think he hits at the heart of it. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's probably a number of different things that you could express as being the point of the Sermon on the Mount, at least for sure it says this. It's an argument against superficial religion. It's an argument for the reality of faith, not just putting on a facade. Dallas Willard wrote a book that uh, I just read with, a, with a, a friend of mine. And he paraphrased the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are the spiritual zeros. Yeah, that, that's pretty good, huh? The spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, the deprived, the deficient. Theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek. And, and you go through this whole thing and you say, so, man, I'm not much. But theirs is the kingdom of God because it's his kingdom, right? Because it's about him. Because it's not about us, it's about him. Because it's his strength, not our own, that's going to produce our ability to be able to engage in the kingdom of God. Matthew 5.20, and Mark dealt with this last week, is a good summary statement where Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness is, it's plural, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the spiritual elite, the guys that had their act together, the men... (laughs) They're the men in their culture. They were the guys. They knew it. Unless your righteousnesses exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I don't know about you, but that threat of never entering the kingdom of heaven ought to cause you to shudder a little bit. Because I, I've read a little bit about Pharisees and a little bit about scribes. And those guys were avid participants in what Jesus said is a facade religion. But if you didn't understand the superficiality and the facadeness of it, you would say, they do a boatload of stuff, stuff I'm glad I don't have to do. And here's what Jesus is saying. is my kingdom's about me. If you want to participate in my kingdom, you do it through me. And as a matter of fact, you have the privilege of not being more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, but having a righteousness that's not your own. It's a righteousness that comes through the faith in Jesus Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ says, all right, amen. It's the grace of God that allows me to participate in that righteousness. Now, after Jesus makes that bold statement, then he goes into six sections or six little um, little units that deal with these, uh, their antithesis, antithetical statements. And, and he, he does it in a very good Hebrew fashion. And last week, Mark started it. The, the, the Hebrew methodology of dealing with these antithesis are, you've heard that it's been said, Right? And then he says, but I say to you, that's the other side. You've heard that it's been said, but I say to you, here's what your scribes and Pharisees, here's what your culture says, but here's what I say. He does that six times in verse 21. You've heard that it's been said in verse 27, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but you can see it's the exact same formula. You've heard that it's been said, you've heard that it's been said, but I say to you. And I look at it like, and, and as a matter of fact, I've entitled this sermon as these are tests or 
lenses through which you can look at yourself and see whether you're superficial or real. Are you superficial or real? Well, do you hate? Well, that's going to be a determiner of whether you're superficial or real. Or do you lust? Or do you divorce? Or are you a liar? Or, and Jesus goes on, it, it, and I think it's a good, t- I don't think it's exclusive, I don't think it says everything that could possibly have been said, uh, I think Jesus lets a lot unsaid, but he stimulated their minds, and I'm convinced that the Sermon on the Mount ought to stimulate our minds in the 21st century, and it ought to stimulate us away from facade, superficial Christianity, to want to embrace the reality of Jesus Christ and all that he means for us in life, so that's what it's about. You know, when I think of this section, I think of an old TV show, <clears throat> Leave it to Beaver. Everybody, anybody never heard of Leave it to Beaver? You don't have the guts to raise your hand. Oh, I see one back there. Well, it was a show, and I'm sure most of you have seen the reruns or ever. And, you know, it had the Cleaver family. I mean, Mrs. Cleaver always had a dress on when she was washing, when she was cleaning, whatever she was doing. Didn't matter. You know, you're like... <laughs> What's up with it? She's got this dress on. And then her husband, I think it seemed like he had a suit. You know, he's, I don't know if he did, but it felt like that. He's, he's eating with a suit. You know, they're just the proper family. They have two slightly precocious kids, but pretty good kids. And then the character that grabs your attention is Eddie Haskell. I mean, Eddie Haskell comes walking into the Cleaver household and he looks very prim and proper. And he says, hello, Mrs. Cleaver. And you just want to go, ah, you know, and, and he says, you have such a nice house. You're just such a good... And your hair is always so nice and you're dressing and, and you're just like... Because you know when he walks out of the house and he just blasts her. and he has, he, He's the ultimate statement in my mind of superficiality. You put on this show and yet that's not really what's in your heart. It reminds me sometimes of the church that comes and sings, Blessed be the name of the Lord. You're all I need. Does that sound Eddie Haskellish? I'm just such a good singer. And then we go out of here, and on Monday morning, Jesus, I need a whole lot more than you. I don't know what this stuff is. And we play the game of religiosity, the superficiality of it. Let me clock in and clock out when I come to church, and then I go on living the rest of my life. And Jesus said, I'm not going to have any of that. (laughs) That's not my kingdom. And so he gives these antithesis, and I think they're pretty good tests. And and let me let's get at it, because there's more to cover here than we have time to do as usual. There's two tests we're going to look at this morning. We're picking two out of the six because they're next in order to determine whether you're an authentic follower of the kingdom of God. And test number one, and listen to this carefully, and then we're going to wrestle with a a challenging passage. Test number one is authentic, committed marriages, or I would argue if you're here this morning and you're not married, you can include yourself in the sermon. Committed relationships that are, are pinnacled in marriage versus superficial, disposable marriages or relationships. It's the idea of permanence versus disposable. And and it's not the only test for the kingdom of God, but it's one of those tests. And Jesus thinks it's really significant, and I'm here to tell you that it was significant in the first century. That's why he picked it as one of his six antithesis. And it's got to be at least as significant now in our culture where we live in a world of superficiality. That seems to be the name of the game, and it seems to be the name of the game in marriages where we think they're disposable, that somehow go at it, try the best you can. When it doesn't work, dump it. (laughs) Jesus says, and this is good Greek, he says, baloney with an asterisk after it or an exclamation point. He says, that's not my kingdom. Well, let's look at the text. Fascinating, challenging, 
convicting passage. Verse 31, Jesus says, It was also said... And remember, that's the same thing he had said in verse 21 and verse 27. It had also, or, or it, it could be, it's, the translation is correct, but the nuance is, you have heard that it has been said. And when he said that, I think he was at least referring to the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 24.1, and we're not going to look at that this morning, but you could. There's this little section that's kind of interesting where, where Moses talks about divorce to the children of Israel. And I, I've read it and looked at it, and it's one of those, if I were them, I'm not sure what I would fully think about what Moses was saying. He seemed to understand that there was some level of divorce in that culture, in their context. But he said, if you do it, you've got to issue a bill of divorcement. Don't just dump them. Have a bill of divorcement there. And then you can't remarry the person that you divorced. And, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, all right. So I think Jesus was referring back to that. If you're going to, he says, you've heard that it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I think he was also referring to, and maybe even more so, to a period of time in Jewish history that was the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I've talked about this before when we, in our series on Nehemiah. There was a 400-year time period between Old Testament and New Testament where God did not speak. There was no written form of his revelation to Israel. 400 years, they were kind of on their own. And what a 400 years. You study the history of Israel during that time period. That's where the Pharisees came into existence. There were no Pharisees in the Old Testament. <laughs> the law didn't have Pharisees. Pharisees came in that intertestamental time period, that 400 years. The tradition started to well up. And as a matter of fact, they recorded a lot of their traditions, which were their interpretations of the law. What do you think about this? And the rabbis, they just wrestled and they bickered back and forth. And they had all these lines of tradition that came down to the time of Jesus. And you see Jesus, it's almost like he's pulling out his hair, although not literally because he's sovereign. But he's looking and saying, what law are you guys reading? Your tradition has consumed you and you've lost the point. You're superficial at the max of the definition of superficiality. Well, the tradition of those Jews was later recorded in what's called the Mishnah. And I've said this before, too. I, for some reason, I just like the Mishnah. This is one out of six volumes. And one time before when I preached, I brought all six of them in just for the, just to get the sheer volume of how much was written and, and, or how much was in, it, actually most of it was oral tradition and it was later written that the Jews said, this rabbi says this, this rabbi says this, this rabbi says this. And there's just all this debate and this argument stuff going on. There's a whole section on divorce. In my copy here, it's 55 pages long. And now I lost my marker. <coughs> So I'll have to read the whole thing to you. <laughs> uh, maybe not. There's 55 pages, and it, it has Hebrew, it has English, it has the interpretation of it. You can look at it after the service if you're enamored with it. You can go buy it at Borders Bookstore. They've got a copy of the Mishnah. And it was the kind of stuff that the Jews were thinking about when Jesus was there. And I think when he said, you've heard that it was said, he's talking to these Jewish traditional people who most of the section on divorce didn't have to do with how can you not get divorced? How can we avoid this? Most of it just assumed, well, they're going to get divorced. Let's see if we can find how many legal loopholes can we find to get divorced. And the biggest thing they wrote about, this is great, is how to formally officially write the divorce. And, and it says things like, if you're going to write a divorce, it can be written on anything with ink. And, and I'm just going to paraphrase this. It's got to be permanent. You can't write, you know, if you're going to do a divorce, don't write it with that invisible ink or that stuff that's going to smear. Do it with permanent ink. And, and then one of, the, one of the rabbis said, it can be written on anything, on an olive leaf. Got an olive leaf? Write on. It could be written on, and this seems so random, 
on a cow's horn. Thinking, yeah, I'm going to get divorced. Where's a cow? I'm writing on that horn. And you got to write it in indelible ink. But here's the kicker. You ready for the kicker? But you got to give her the cow. So if you're going to divorce her, you can write the bill of divorcement on the horn, but then you got to give the, her the cow. Because they didn't know anything of women divorcing men. It was only men divorcing women. You give her the cow. And, and it goes on and says, and they, they debated, but what they were in essence saying is, if you're going to write a bill of divorcement, write it well and write it right, and we're not even sure how to write it. That's the kind of debate. Do you wonder why Jesus looked at the scribes and Pharisees in some sense in disbelief and said, what kind of religion are you guys after? I mean, if, if, if your religion doesn't exceed or if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you don't have any hope. And I tell you what, if you're sitting around debating whether to write a divorce on a cow's horn or not, that's not my sense of what, <laughs> of what true righteousness is all about. The, the very end, the last Mishnah in this section of divorce Mishnahs talks about three, and I'm just going to summarize it, talks about three rabbis, well-known rabbis. I mean, they were hero rabbis. They were the rock star rabbis or something like that. They would have been well-known at the time of Jesus. And, and they kind of go Shammai, Hillel, and Aqaba. I mean, you guys, you, you already know a lot about them, so I'm just going to refresh your memory. Or maybe you don't. The guy Shammai, he was like the conservative, and, and Hillel, he was like the moderate and Aqaba, he was the liberal. You know, it's just like us. And, and Shammai said this, if you want to get a divorce, the grounds for divorce are finding something improper in the woman. And again, men divorced women, women didn't divorce men. Obviously, that's changed. And he was, he was the conservative. He said you have to find something improper. And what he meant by that, although they debated it quite a bit, was most likely that it would be some sort of sexual infidelity. So he was saying if you're going to get divorced, it has to be on the grounds of some sort of sexual infidelity. Although they wrestled with that and they broadened that a little bit. And, and they also, and most or at least several guys would argue that Shammai said, and if you find that in your spouse, you have to divorce. No option. So that was the conservative. The moderate, Hillel, he said, well, this idea of something improper could be not just sexual immorality. It could be, I mean, this is pretty obvious, that if you go home and you're really hungry, you sit down to dinner and the chicken comes out and it's got black smoke coming out of it, that you can say, if my wife burns my meal, I'm finding a cow and I'm writing a bill of divorcement. I've had it. It's enough. How do you, you expect me to live with this? He actually did say that. You can write a bill of divorcement if the meal is not appropriate. But I guess that's moderate. That's moderate compared to Aqaba who said, hey, if you're just walking down the street and you see this girl, she's a pretty nice looking girl. I think I like that girl. And you go home and tell your wife, hey, I was walking down the street. I saw this girl, pretty nice looking girl. I'm finding the cow. I'm writing the bill of divorce because I'm going to her instead of you. And, and most of the people would have said, Aqaba, you're one of those ultra-liberals. We don't buy that. They would have also said, Shammai, you're kind of conservative. We don't buy that. They would have been, most of the people would have accepted that there were tons of grounds for divorce and we're going to look for all kinds of loopholes. That's the Mishnah. That's the oral tradition. That's the world that Jesus came in. And he said, you've heard that it's been said. Make sure you write a bill or a certificate of divorce. And then look at the next thing that's stated in the text. And don't miss this. It begins with one of my favorite words. And believe me, am I thankful for this word in this context? And it's the word, but. That's how you're supposed to say it. Or maybe you ought to say it, but. I just like to do that every now and then. There's a contrast. Aren't you glad that the world of the kingdom of God isn't made up of superficial 
people who want to figure out whether to write divorces on bull's horns or cow's horns or whoever it is that has horns. Jesus said, hey, I got another option. He said, but, and then the next thing he says is, I say, but I say, you want to know what they say? You already know what they say. Here's what I say. And the people of the kingdom of God say, when God says, we get on our knees and we say, God, speak a little louder because we don't want to miss anything that you have to say because your words are life, right? The the Greek for I say, and I don't like to throw Greek out there, but I just think this is kind of a fun, it's ego lego. Ego Lego. Could you say that with me this morning, class? <laughs> Ego Lego. If I were you, I probably wouldn't have done that either. Ego Lego. I mean, it kind of, it's like, kind of, there used to be a commercial about Ego My Lego or Lego something like that. Ego Lego. Ego Lego. You know what? The church, whenever you hear Ego Lego and the Ego, which is the word I, the antecedent of that pronoun is Jesus Christ. And we better have our ears open and perked and ready. And you may be sleeping through the rest of the sermon, but you better sit on the edge of your seat because when Jesus says, but I say, then the people of God say, but we respond. Because we want to know what you say more than we want to know what our culture says, what our rabbis, what our scribes, even the religious elite. We want to know what you have to say, Jesus. Even the form of it, the word lego would literally be translated, I say. In Greek, you can have a subject with the verb. It's, it's inherent within the verb. The O ending means I. I say. So it's redundant. The word ego, that comes, you know, that's in English, ego. It means I. It, it literally is I, I say, which is terrible English, great Greek. It means this, I myself say. It means this, you can talk to all the people you want, line them up, get hundreds of them, get thousands of rabbis, and yet when I speak, it trumps all of them. It not only trumps all of them, it negates all of them, it's all that really matters. And the authentic church comes together and we gather in assembly. And you know, one of the things that the church ought to be salivating for is to hear the word of our God. It's one of the things I like about College Park. Because we come and I can sense that there's a group of people that say, hey, maybe he's a different guy up there. And I mean, I like him as well as I like the other guy. But you know what? I love the word of God. So bring it on. Jesus said, but I, now here's what he says. And then sometimes, you know, when Jesus says what he says, we're going to say, wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> Not sure I like that. You know, it's never open for debate. It isn't Jesus said, but I say this and I hope you like it. It's like, but I say this and it's the way of life. Here's what he says. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife... That sounds pretty inclusive. Then there's a little clause that I'm going to come back to, except on the ground of of sexual immorality, because I don't think that's the focus of the text. It's there, and I'm going to talk about it, so I'm not going to avoid it. And we'll deal with it and wrestle with it a little bit. But look at it without that, because I think that's the thrust of this text, that anyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, after I get done saying that, then I want to say, Jesus... I wish you had said something like, don't ever get divorced. <laughs> I wish you had said, just, just, and, and he wrote it in good first century Hebrew style. I think they understood exactly what he was saying. And I think the heart of what he was saying is, you have made your marriages so superficial, so disposable that they can come or go. Here's what I say. Marriage is not disposable. Marriage is permanent. It's a relationship that reflects the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father never says to the Spirit, you're disposable, Spirit. We can do it without you. (laughs) It's perfect unity, and the image bearers are to reflect that perfect unity in our marriages. And marriages are to be permanent. They're to be those that are non-disposable. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, here's the way he says it. If you divorce your wife, 
you make her commit adultery. And it's interesting that the text even seems to argue that the guy that divorces his wife, because remember, wives aren't going to divorce men. Men are going to divorce them. And the sense is if you divorce her without legitimate grounds, and I'll throw that little insertion in there, but if you do that, then you are the one responsible for her adultery. Now, obviously, we're all personally culpable for our own actions, But Jesus is saying this, hey, it's a major issue if you cause someone like your wife or your spouse to fall into sin, sin so grievous that in the Old Testament, the penalty for that particular sin was stoning. Stoning. Wow. If we did that, I don't think we got enough stones in the United States to stone all the adulterers, do we? I mean, we'd run out. We'd have to come up with some company that builds, makes stones. And I guess I'm being a little light about that, and yet pretty sobering, isn't it? I mean, it's sobering to the point of it almost blows your mind. Because from Jesus' perspective, he was putting the ultimate statement of, here's what it is. You've, and not only that, not only have you caused her to commit adultery, but whoever marries that divorced woman commits adultery as well. It's as though Jesus said, I am sick and tired of this facade Christianity or facade religion that makes my kingdom so superficial that you sit around and debate what grounds for divorce are. I want a group of people that certainly you understand that there's challenges and difficulties in relationships and certainly in marriages. But the overarching reality of my kingdom is that marriages and that relationships are intended to be permanent, not temporary, not disposable, not look for all the exceptions. Let's look for the permanence and the reality of marriage. That's what Jesus is saying. And we ought to be saying, absolutely amen, Jesus. Because we want to be a part of your kingdom. And that's what your kingdom looks like. Now, there is an exception clause. And this exception clause, and you see it in there, right? It says except, and then it has a couple words after that. That's an exception clause. It's actually a prepositional phrase. And except is, a, is an interesting word. It's created an incredible amount of controversy. Incredible amount of literature has been written. You can read it a lot if you want. Here's what I encourage you to do. And that is, read some of that literature, because it's okay to read. But read more literature about how to stay married, how to make it permanent. The focus of this text is not the exception. And I'm going to talk about the exception, but I want to say this enough times so you go out of here and say, well, you know, he really thinks that Jesus is saying that marriage is intended to be permanent. Let me say that one more time. Jesus thinks marriage is intended to be permanent. Let me say that one more time. Jesus thinks that marriage is intended to be permanent because God Almighty is in permanent relationship with his people and that's the way it's reflected. And then then I'll say, however, there is an exception clause. And and, and there are guys like, I'm going to give the position that I take is one that Jay Adams takes and John MacArthur and a lot of other guys. And, And there's some on the other side. And unfortunately, one of the guys on the other side is a guy named John Piper, who I have an incredible amount of respect for. And I'm thinking, John, how could you take a position different than me? Come on. What's up with that? <clears throat> and it also makes me think, how can I take a position different than him? <laughs> and I'm not going to go into all the depths of all those kind of things. Here's the way I read it. I think the word accept means accept. I think it means there is an exception. And then the accept goes on, and there's actually two words in the original, and it comes out and translates well, I think, in this translation, the ESV, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. The word, and again, you've probably heard this, and even if you haven't, you can kind of pick up on the Greek word. It's the word pornea. You know, that comes in English, doesn't it? I mean, pornography, and there's probably other words like that. 
it, I think, and, and I, I quoted from the lexicon or the dictionary, the Greek dictionary, that's, that's probably the best thought of dictionary. And, and it translates or it, it defines pornea as various sexual deviation. It's a little broader word than the word adultery. It, it refers to sexual deviation that could be in or out of marriage, and it could be in different kinds of contexts. And at least these editors of that dictionary say it includes marital infidelity. Let me read a, another quote from a guy, Blomberg, who's a New Testament scholar from Denver. And he says this. He says, even with the exception, Jesus is stricter than Shammai. And Shammai was the conservative guy. Jesus never commands divorce. He never says, if you find sexual infidelity in your spouse, you must divorce them. He never says that. As a matter of fact, when you read Jesus, here's what you're going to think. Jesus is going to say, boy, this idea of confession and forgiveness is a big deal. Matter of fact, that seems to trump, hey, you've got grounds to divorce. Maybe you ought to consider forgiving. That sounds more Jesus-ish, doesn't it? Sure does to me. Jesus never commands divorce, but only permits it if All attempts at reconciliation have failed. It doesn't say that in the text, but I think that's a good read of the text. Or all attempts have, and and how do you know when the last attempt has been made? I'm not really totally sure. That's why I'm glad we're in a community of faith when people are wrestling with this issue. Do I fit this accept thing that they can talk with some of the leaders in the church and some people that are spiritually perceptive? And here's what the leaders of the church are going to tell you. Well, keep waiting Because you want to be absolutely certain and you don't want to jump the gun and you're not looking for exceptions. As a matter of fact, what I love to hear of people is they're saying, hey, I've got this really rotten marriage. I've even got an unfaithful spouse. And yet I want to be committed to Christ and I want to stick it out and I want to work at it as long as I possibly can. That's the heart that I love to hear. However, I do think there is that exception clause. And frankly, I can't get around it. I think it's there. It goes on. That because he recognizes Jesus that the adultery has already undermined one of the most fundamental elements of the marriage, sexual exclusivity. And and here's part of what I think that exception clause is in there for. Because some of us will think that we can do whatever we want and our spouse ought to just say, oh well. And you know what? You can't do whatever you want. The fact is this. God doesn't let you do whatever you want. You think you can do it and God's not going to judge you? I'm here to tell you God's going to judge adulterers and porneaers and sexually immoral people. So much so that some of the texts in scripture would say this. If you're committed to sexual immorality, you better look at your soul. Because you think you may lose your marriage. You know what? You may lose your marriage. But let me trump that one by saying you may lose your soul. And we live in a world that's like shrugs it off. Hey, it's no big deal. Man, you guys, you're like those ultra conservatives and you're even more conservative than the ultra conservatives. And God says, but I say, and when God says, but I say, the people of God bow their knee and say, God, you said it. So we obey it. And what God says is marriage is permanent and there is an exception. And I don't deny that exception. It's there. And yet that's not the focus. And it really isn't in that text. The focus is on the exclusivity of marriage, the commitment of marriage because it reflects who God is. That's the main point. That's the main focus. Sin is real and can destroy. Do not focus on that, but be committed. You know, let me give you a couple of... uh, There's three summary points that I think come out of this text that I find very compelling. The first one is this. Let me punch it up. (laughs) Do not. And and this was relevant in Jesus' time. 
and somehow it feels more relevant now, and it probably isn't, but it feels that way. Do not live based on current cultural trends. I don't know if you're aware of current cultural trends. I'm going to tell you, I'm not the most culturally aware person. Just not. And sometimes I think I ought to be more culturally aware. You know, I do have a cell phone, so that's pretty good. Some of the other things, I had vacation this past week with my kids, and it always blows me away. Every year they come on vacation, it's like, what new contraptions are you, you know, and I mean, all this cultural stuff that's out there. I know this about our culture, because I watch enough TV, not a lot, but enough. I've seen enough internet, hopefully not a lot, a lot, but not a lot, but enough, to know this, that marriage is like sort of almost passe. You know, be committed when you're living together. (laughs) Yeah, be committed when you're living together. But if you get married, that binds you a little bit too much. You know what I want to say? You're right. Marriage does bind you. It binds you really like a whole lot. Like maybe that's what God's kingdom is about. And if you're going to listen, and I tell you what, we got kids growing up in a society that's bombarded with all the baloney about how marriage is old-fashioned. And, and, and it just seems worse and worse. It just seems like year after year, the next sitcom just seems to amplify it, doesn't it? I mean, is it just me or is it really out there? And then the Internet and then the music and then you can go on and on and on. And if you're going to live based on cultural norms and cultural mores and cultural stuff, you've heard that it's been said and you swallow that stuff, then you're never going to hear what Jesus says. And here's the problem with that. Don't think that the kingdom of God is yours. (laughs) Because unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're never going to see the kingdom of God. Man, that sounds like an old fundamentalist, doesn't it? Sounds like thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord. And and Eric mentioned it. I found it intriguing. We just celebrated the 4th of July, and I love the United States of America. And a couple weeks ago, we were in Nicaragua. And I love the Nicaraguans, and I've gone down there for a number of years, and it's a cool mission trip to go on, and I can't wait to get back. And our plane touches Houston, USA. And it's almost like you want to kiss the ground and say, man, do I love this country. And I am glad that we're a free country. And I'm also very aware of how much of a plague that's been for us to live with freedom. We don't understand kingdom. Our founding fathers didn't want a kingdom. They left the kingdom. And then Jesus says, I'm all about kingdom. So we're 21st century Americans trying to, Americans trying to figure out, how do I submit to a king and a kingdom? Because we're free. I mean, we're free. We're autonomous. It's about us. (laughs) And that whole idea of liberty and freedom. And here's what Jesus said. Here's what true freedom is. You bond yourself to me. Paul said, I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That's where I find true freedom. And that's like countercultural. It's like, just kind of causes you to, to... And here's what marriages are like. Marriages are like, when it gets a little bit tough, it's not disposable, just dump it. It's like you stick with it because that's what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is made up of committed relationships to him and to others. You know, do you, do, do, do you think this would be a cool thing if we had inserted in our Christian faith, which we don't, that, hey, sometime Jesus may look at you and say, you know, after your last week, I mean, burning meals is like nothing. I've, got, I've had it. You're out of here. Tell you what, if that's the way you see Jesus, then you better read your New Testament and your Old Testament again because he's a God of grace. He's a God of steadfast covenant loyalty. He's committed in his relationship to us and our relationship in marriage is to reflect Christ's relationship to the church, right? And, and, and at the core of that would have to be that it's not something that's disposable. And I tried to think, you know, I like to do these visual aids. I tried to think of disposable stuff. 
There's disposable cameras. There's disposable. I mean, we have, it just seems like everything becomes disposable. And this may be a bit crude, but hey, hang with it. This is disposable. We were in Nicaragua. One of the things about that you tell the team when you go to Nicaragua is, and we stay in this fairly nice place, but we say that this stuff's disposable, but don't dispose of it like you do in the United States. It doesn't go down to the toilet. You put it in a can next to it. And we're always like, and, and you know, one of the good things about coming back to the United States, you take this stuff and you put it in the toilet. That's where it belongs. Because it's disposable. And we live in a society where marriage is kind of like that. It's disposable. Hey, it's not working. It's not quite. It's just like disposable. And then you think, oh, well, that was disposable anyway. Here's what God says. And he says it not implicitly, but explicitly in this text, and that is marriage is not disposable. It's not. It's to be permanent because it reflects who I am, because it's about my kingdom, because it ought to be about my kingdom. You know, here's the third point that comes out of this text. You may think your actions only affect you. We tend to do that. We tend to think... Oh, well, you know, it just, it just affects me. It doesn't. This text says, and I find it intriguing, and I'm not totally sure what to do with it, but when the man divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, he makes her an adulteress. It doesn't say she makes herself an adulteress. His acts have an effect on her. They have an effect on your kids. They have an effect on your families. They have an effect on your relatives. They have an effect on the church. It has an effect on the kingdom of God. Don't think you're an island to yourself. Don't think you're an American when it comes to Christianity. Scrap your American idealism and start to think Jesus' kingdom idealism and reality. <laughs> yeah, it does affect people and it affects them drastically you know it also affects people when you're committed (laughs) you know it does when you say i'm sticking with it that affects people radically well i've got a couple pastoral comments to make and i always feel like i'm rushing so i'm going to rush through these i think that's what the text has to say that's my interpretation of it and if you don't like it and i said this in first service send don an email my brother (laughs) (laughs) He's my younger brother, and he deserves... Actually, he laughed at that, too. Let me make these comments. To those of you that are married, we have a lot of married people in our church. And I'm glad we've got a lot of married people in our church, because somehow the kingdom of God is made up of married people. It's also made up of single people. And I I wanted to do a whole section on single people, but I thought I was going to run out of time. If you're single, let me say this before I say this. That's why I never have time. Um, That relationships are a part of the kingdom of God. And if you're single, don't think, oh, well, God's left me behind. Um, and, and, and I realize that most people have a desire to be married, and that's a good thing. And if for whatever reason, God in his grace, maybe, or at least in his sovereignty, has put you in a state that you're not married, don't say, well, I can't have any relationships. I'd say, go after relationships, man. Learn how to have good, solid relationships. It may set the stage for marriage, even if it doesn't. You'll find the fullness of being able to relate like the kingdom of God expects you to relate. And you may say, ah, it's just a married person saying that. And I'm going to say, hey, I think that's what God would have for you. For those of you that are married, hear this and hear it well and hear it as being the interpretation of what Jesus is saying. And that is that marriage is sacred and it's holy. It's not disposable. It isn't just, oh, well, you know, the old people used to think that you had to do it. And we're just, we're we're way beyond that. We understand that there's so many other things in life that are so important. You know, I've done a number of weddings. And in the last year and a half, I've been involved in two daughters' weddings, which somehow make all the other weddings 
They're really good weddings because some of them have been you. But they're different. You know, it's just different. And I know I've talked about that before. It's different. I mean, I, I'm probably not going to cry at your wedding. Sorry. My daughter's up there and somehow it's just like different. These are my, these are my girls. It's my girls. And I did have an opportunity to talk to them about marriage and the permanence of marriage. And I looked in their face and in their spouse's face. And I said that marriage is intended by God to reflect the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And there will never be a division in Father, Son, and Spirit. And there should never be a division in your marriage. Because that's who we're reflecting. Christ loved the church. It's the way husbands ought to be loving your wives. And then even that somewhat challenging text, wives submit to your husband, that there ought to be this love, this bond that happens in marriage that reflects who God is. It's sacred, it's holy. Superficial marriages are a sign of superficial relationships with Jesus Christ. And we tend to bifurcate our lives. We tend to compartmentalize and say, well, yeah, yeah, I'm not the best husband, but I still love Jesus. You don't love Jesus if you're not working really hard at being a good husband to your wife. And you know what? It's the same thing with wives. Sometimes I find it harder to talk to wives. But if you're not loving your wife or your, your wife, you're not loving your husband. If you're not being what God wants couples to be, here's what's at the core of it. You have a superficial relationship with Jesus Christ, which makes for a superficial relationship with our loved ones. And, and I put down, I'm, I'm running out of time. Some of the things you can do, you can pray. Equipping the saints, we have this neat thing, and it's already, a weekend's already been gone, but I just got to believe that maybe you could sneak in if you paid twice as much as it cost or whatever. <laughs> maybe half. I don't know. We can figure out a way to do it. It just helps you to understand how do I better deal with issues in my own life so that I can minister to my spouse. I love the book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage, and the main reason I love it is because of the, the title, Sacred Marriage, just sounds like, wow. And then the subtitle is, God Intends Marriage... More, and I'm, I'm misstating it. It's intended more to make you holy than it is to make you happy. Huh. What a weird, that's the kingdom of God. It's not intended to make you happy. Although, here's the really cool thing, that when you find holiness that comes out of marriage, it's incredibly enjoyable, enjoyable healthy, happy type thing. It really is. You know what, we need a church at College Park where people are committed to the kingdom of God and they're tired of superficiality in their faith with Jesus and they're tired of superficiality in their marriages and there is authenticity as husbands and wives love each other and live for the kingdom of God. That's what we need. Well, you know, to the sexually unfaithful, and I'm here to tell you, in our church we have people that are sexually unfaithful. They fit the definition of pornea. Some of them may be you. And I don't know of anybody specific, so I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I'm not. I just have been around enough, and I've been around our community enough, and I know hearts well enough to know that it's true there. That exception clause isn't like pie in the sky. Well, that'll never happen. It's like, you know what? That does happen. And here's my call from Jesus Christ, and that is that sexual infidelity is superficial sexuality and makes superficial relationships, and it's damning. And you think, oh, well, I can piddle with the Internet. I can watch different shows. I... I don't know what women do. They probably, you know, romance novels, fantasies, all that kind of stuff. And you think, it doesn't really matter. You know what? However you deal with that exception clause, it seems to me to be saying something like this. It really does matter. It could destroy your marriage and it could destroy your soul. And so you know what? Today, you shouldn't leave this building without whether you come forward, wherever you do. I don't care where you do it. Where you get on your knees and say, God, I have been unfaithful in my sexual thought. Like we talked about that last week. It's like these things all go together. And repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand.
Yeah, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, then to the divorced. And, you know, I know in our church we've got people that have in their past divorce. And unfortunately, I can relate. And, you know, I, I am incredibly happily married to my wife, Kathy. And some of you may don't, maybe you don't know her because she's always in first service. And God's been incredibly gracious. But I've gone through that challenging reality of life. I can, I can remember 20, over 20 years ago being in a courtroom. And the judge said, he had gone through the case and it didn't take very long. And said, does anybody have any last thing to say? And I said, yeah, I'm opposed to divorce. I don't think this is right. And the judge made this profound statement. Said, it was a she. Said, it's nothing you can do about it. The gavel dropped, I think. Feels like it did. And in my mind, it was as though the cosmos, the world, had a crack in it. It was almost as though it was bigger than just me and bigger than just that courtroom and bigger than just this little thing. It was almost as though, how could a permanent, inviolable, indissolvable covenant of marriage be broken by so I you know I understand a little bit about it I also understand this that if you've sinned in your divorce and some of you have and some of you are the sinning party in the divorce you weren't the exception you were the initiator you're the one that sinned one of the things I love about College Park and from the earliest days We were committed to being a church that welcomes sinners who are willing to repent and willing to live a life that pleases God. But you didn't have to come in already there. (laughs) That that was encouraging for me. And I'm sure it's encouraging for some of you. But don't come in and say, it doesn't really matter. Here's what you need to do. And it's part of the beauty of God's kingdom. And that is that we're sinners, but we're sinners who have the opportunity to repent of our sin. And not just ignore it. And not just do the superficial thing. Let's pretend like nothing ever happened. Let's do that you can repent and you can reconcile broken relationships. And I tell you what, there's the glory of the kingdom of God. Reconciled relationships because Jesus or, or Paul said this. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Yeah. Man, that's, a, that's like a breath of fresh air and a cold, a cup of cold water on parched lips. If you're considering divorce, we have people in our church that are considering divorce. When people come and say that to me, here's what my first words are. Don't do it. Don't do it. You say, well, wait a minute, you're being too harsh. Don't you know there's an exception clause? I do know there's an exception clause. And I do know there are grounds as I interpret the scripture. But here's what I hear Jesus saying really, really loud. Don't do it! If it's last, 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 last resort, and I don't know how many adjectives you have to put on there, because here's reality in the kingdom of God that Christ forgives and we ought to be forgivers as well. And yeah, maybe the day does come when it's truly dead. I understand that. But boy, if you're thinking about that, you're just like the scribes and Pharisees. I can't wait to find the next opportunity to say, this is done, this is done, this is done. You know what's been really cool at College Park? And it's not just here, it's elsewhere. To see some marriages of people who they would have, when they came into the counseling office, they would have said, this marriage is deader than a doornail, which I don't even know what that means. But it was like dead, dead, dead. And they came in and they said, yeah, we're willing to submit to the Holy Spirit, pretty active agent of the triune Godhead. We're willing to live like Jesus tells us to live. We're willing to live in the power of the sovereign, almighty God. And God's taken marriages that, frankly, I would have looked at and said, you know what? It probably is dead, but I'm a pastor. I've got to work with this thing. And it's turned around 
And it's been unbelievable to see the glory of God in reconciled relationships. I mean, that's what the kingdom of God is talking about. Now, are there times when it's at the ultimate end? Yeah, you know what? I think there are. And here's what I say to that. And that is find your encouragement and solace in Jesus and in his church. And I hope I've been sensitive enough in this whole thing. And there's a, there's a whole lot of things that could be said. And our church is sensitive. And we're sensitive saying the main call is marriage is permanent. And yet in those, I hope, rare situations where that doesn't happen, here's what the response ought to be. It shouldn't be how quickly can I find another relationship. It ought to be I'm going to cling to Jesus Christ because he's enough. He's enough. He's enough. And he is enough. Well, I knew I was going to spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> I've got one other point. Before I go to that one other point, there's one illustration I want to do, though. And then I'm going to do the other point in like five minutes. And I'm pretty sure I have ten minutes left. So I'll probably go eight minutes. <laughs> I want to ask, if you would, if you're here this morning and you've been married for 50 years or more, 50, 5 would you stand? Just stand. Do we have any 50-plusers or do they all go to first service? All right, thank you. We have some representatives. Hang on, stand up. Stay up. Hold, hold. Hey, hey, would you guys stand up? Because, yeah, please. Thank you. I mean, I, I, there's something about, you know, I don't know what we honor in society. We honor the wrong things, don't we? We honor football heroes that sleep around. Here's the kind of people we ought to be. If you're 40 years or plus, would you stand up? You've been married 40 years or, pl- or more. All right. Hang on. 30 years or more. 30 years or more. Stand up. 30 years or more. You know what? Just stand up for a minute. Some don't want to admit they're old enough to have been married 30 years or more. I understand that. (laughs) I don't know what you think the kingdom of God looks like. And by the way, just because these people are standing doesn't mean they've got a free ticket into the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God ought to look like people who learn how to live marriages and to live it for the long haul. And people who understand, you know what, marriage is not disposable, it's permanent. And that's what the kingdom of God is about. So thanks, you guys can be seated. I just think that's a great illustration of what the kingdom of God's about. Now, test number two, that, or it's actually test number four. I'm going to go through this real quick. So you've got to shift gears. You ready? kind of grinds when you shift. <laughs> Jesus goes into this next little section, and frankly, it fits with the, the, the section we talked about already. And it fits into the whole of these antithesis sections. And he says this, that authentic lives of integrity versus superficial lives that are facades and dishonor integrity. He moves into another category, but a similar category. It's the category of honesty and integrity. Now, watch how he does it. Let's, we're going to go through this very quickly. In verse 33, it says, again... You have heard that it was said to those of old. Same formula. And by the way, if you look in the Mishnah, I didn't bring the section that dealt with that. I mean, it's voluminous about oaths. And and here's the kind of stuff it says. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That you must swear. And when you swear, there's a specific way to swear. You've got to make sure you swear exactly right. And when you do swear exactly right, then you better fulfill it. Because here was the idea of swearing. When you swear, you swear based on God and his kingdom, and the idea of breaking an oath is to incur the wrath of the deity, in this case, God. So if you swear and you don't do it, may God zip you. It's kind of like, here's our contemporary way of doing that. Cross my heart, 
hope to die, right? That's pretty severe. That's like the curse of the deity. Kill me. Cross my heart, hope to get sick for a couple days. We ought to modify that a little bit. Cross my heart, hope to die. And then the, the penalty of the deity is take your glasses off and you get a needle stuck in your eye. Unless you have your fingers crossed or your legs crossed or your toes crossed. Don't you remember doing that as kids? I had my finger. It's that same kind of game they were playing. It's the game of superficial integrity. It's the game of you act one way or you speak one way and you act totally different. And then, then, then look at verse 34. Ah, but I say. Here's the way it ought to be read. But I myself say. Here's what he says. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or on the earth, for it's his footstool, or on Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath on your head or by your head. That's kind of weird. For you cannot make one hair white or black, and I'll affirm that. You can't do it. Can't figure out how to... But it's nice to have hair, so, you know, I at least appreciate that part of it. Here's what he's saying by that, that you can swear on heaven. All those are areas where God is in control. So if you swear by heaven, or you swear by earth, or even your head, that God's in control of your body, even you can't even control your hair color. I mean, you can, you can dye it, but that's a facade. And those of you that are doing that facade... Keep doing it. (laughs) I think. I don't know. Anyway, God's really the king. So then he says in verse 37, and here's the punchline. You already know the punchline. You've heard it before. He said, let whatever you say be simply yes or no. Here's the way the old King James used to do it. And I love this because it kind of has a little rhyme to it or a little, little poetic sense to it. Let your yay be yay and your nay be nay. Yay be yay, nay be nay. It isn't just I swear on the Bible and on my grandmother's tomb and on this and on that. And if I don't do it, the deity will poke in something in my eye. But I have a life of integrity so that I don't need to swear. When I speak, what I speak is true because I serve the true and the living and the real God. That's what God's kingdom is made up of. Let me go to the conclusion or the application. Church, here's what God is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. It's to get real. And part of that is not living a life of duplicity. And one of the reasons that divorce is even out there is because we... I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say, that's not the person I married? And then you think, well, let's do a DNA test. I just bet it's the person you married. And obviously they're not looking for a DNA test. They're saying that there was some facade that's no longer there. And now we see the real thing. And God says in this next little section, do not live a life of duplicity. I like that word. Marriages aren't disposable. We shouldn't live lives of duplicity. We ought to be single-minded as truth speakers and truth livers. People that live the truth. You know, as I try to think of an illustration of integrity... I, I, I thought of my brother. So that's pretty good, I guess, right? Because I used to live with him quite a bit. We had the same room. <clears throat> and, and he's a guy that when he says it, I trust it. I believe it. He's a guy of integrity. I think a lot of you would probably affirm that. I don't think you'd say, you're kidding. He's not. I think you'd agree. Well, I remember one time when we were young, like elementary school, my dad's boss came over for dinner, which is, I don't know why they ever did that. You know, it's one of those, why would you ever do that? But it was an older time, you know. And as he came over, I'm sure we were prepped, like, be on your best behavior, this is dad's boss, da-da-da-da-da. And then I think somewhere in there they said, and dad's boss, he's not a Christian, so we want to live an exemplary life even around the dinner table. 
hey, that sounds pretty good. So then we come to dinner and we pray before the meal and Don got the opportunity to pray. So he prays, Lord, thank you for the food. Thank you for this food. It's really good food. Thank you for dad's boss being here. And Lord, we know he's not a Christian. And we know he needs to get saved. And so, save him today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the question is, you're praying, what's your next motion? You know, it's like, it's probably like that Southwestern. You want to get away? (laughs) And I remembered that, and he said, he remembered that illustration. And there's something about that integrity of a little kid that doesn't put on the politically correct facade, but he lives truth. And you may say, well, truth sometimes hurts. And I'd say, man, if that would bring that guy to Christ's kingdom, well, pain's not all that bad, is it? See, God's kingdom is made up of people who are committed to marriages, to relationships, and they're not disposable And they're committed to truth and integrity so that what they say, what we say, is truth and you can count on it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're amazed at your grace that you would take us spiritual zeros and you would make of us children of God. Thank you for that, Lord. And I pray for College Park Church specifically today that you would allow us to have marriages that are not marriages that are considered to be disposable, but they're marriages that are rooted and founded in the covenant that we find in your relationship with us and that we would be doggedly committed to living with each other in the way that you would desire us to live. And for those that are struggling with that, Lord, work in their hearts. Draw them to you. May they not be superficial. And then I pray in our words and our actions and our deeds, may we be those who live out the reality of the integrity of our faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would do that until your kingdom comes. And I pray that in Jesus' precious, saving name. Amen. You know, if you're here this morning... And you don't know Jesus as your Savior. That's the first part of the kingdom of God. We'll have some people up here that would love to show you how you can know that your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because you have Jesus' righteousness. Maybe some of you are struggling with your marriages. Maybe some of you are struggling with pornea. We have people up here that would be glad to pray with you. Have a great day. God bless you.